This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Inside Story on BFM 89.9. Good evening, you're with Lee Chui Lin and Sharad Kutin. Tonight, we're asking, is critical thinking enough to combat hate speech? We're talking about this because the Prime Minister recently told university students that they should employ critical thinking when faced with hate speech. First, we're going to be talking to a psychologist about coping with the emotional triggers that come with listening or being exposed to hate speech. And... The word trigger is important because that's what we're asking you. Do you find hate speech triggering, difficult? Um, how do you work through it? That number to call is double seven double three two nine hundred. Tweet us at BFM Radio and send us a voice note or WhatsApp at our U mobile number 018-789-8899. This is Inside Story. Six oh eight, uh, and our inside story today comes from well, the Prime Minister um, Datuk Sri Anwar Ibrahim, who said on Tuesday that university students shouldn't blindly absorb hateful comments that politicians feed them. Uh, he was speaking at a program called Program Chakna Madani Padanamantri at UKM, uh, and he said essentially students shouldn't make judgments based on hatred, but instead make their own assessments, use their own wisdom to guide them. And he also said that it was okay to disagree with him, but that they should make their own assessments, read, compare, in other words, that they should be critical in their thinking, employ those kinds of skills. Yeah, so he made direct res, uh, reference to political opponents, opponents that he said use racial and religious rhetoric to attack the current government. He said uh, he's and he used the claim that he's heard that he's allowed the country to be taken over by the Chinese and the DAP as an example of the kind of hateful uh, rhetoric there is out there. He's emphasized that the government has always advocated for, uh, for various issues related to the Malays, also ensuring the other races are not neglected. So you try to bring facts uh, to combat the use of sentiment. So this point about, okay, firstly, firstly, I think we should talk about where this is coming from, because this is not coming from nowhere. This is not happening in isolation. We see this going on all the time. We know that the country increasingly has a divide. That divide often runs along not just uh, geographical lines, but also specifically racial and religious sort of cultural war zones. And so because of that, the kind of rhetoric you see coming from political Politicians, yes, but also cultural leaders uh, tends to run along those lines as well. And I think it's coming up in particular because we're heading into the state elections. And so now is the time that you're going to be hearing this sort of thing. Um, and, And so it's worth pointing out that when we talk about hate speech... It's it runs the gamut, right? It can encompass any number of things. Um, I do think most people know it when they see it. 
No, it's true. I mean, uh, but nevertheless, they're triggered, right? So if you know somebody is trying to manipulate you yeah. by pushing that button. So over the Kada owns Penang uh, narrative, we saw it. And then the the next iteration of that was that uh, the Malays of Penang are like, uh, uh, like the Muslims and Christians of Palestine. And, and so all these attempts to um, invoke either current or historic um, reasoning or context to promote a narrative, right? That was it. We saw also it coming, but many of us couldn't resist uh, responding and responding in ways that, in fact, uh, help that narrative go even further. Yes. And I am... I'm guilty of that, I think. Uh, I think we all are. Yeah, not, not so much on social media. Um, and I try my best not to do it on air because that would be, frankly, ridiculous. But um, but I, I think I can't deny that when I look through comments that I know, I know in my heart of hearts are written by cyber troopers. Um, I look at the photos and it's eggs all round or it's, you know, just, just clearly people who aren't real. Um, and yet... When it's really hateful stuff um, and stuff that invokes things that I think are painful, um, deeply painful, like go home, you know, that sort of thing, I it bums me out. It bums me out for a day. It can bum me out up to a week. And I don't necessarily spread it further or respond to it in those ways. But I, I understand that feeling of being triggered. Yeah, but a lot of us who have social media, I'm on Twitter, it's very toxic. And it's very it's, reactive. Yeah, and also. it allows you to react immediately to something. Uh, and so, because we we read the, the headline that reports on hate speech and we respond to it. Uh, we don't even have to read the report. We just read the headline and we know. And, and the question is, uh, you know, I ask myself all this all the time, is who am I convincing? And what is it doing for the world? How do I get uh, out of that space where I feel the need or feel satisfied somehow that justice was done because I said my piece that, you know, I'm a citizen of this country and you cannot tell me to go back to X, Y, and Z continents. Um, you know, so that, but it's very difficult because the the whole thing seems to be structured, right? Especially on social media for immediate response. It is, in fact, the kind of media of triggers, as it were. So we're talking today about hate speech and how you react to it when you encounter it because the Prime Minister has told, well, university students, but I think he likely means this as good advice for all of us, um, that we shouldn't just blindly take in hateful comments, that instead we should assess them critically, use critical thinking. Um, and we're asking you, I mean, do you find hate speech triggering, difficult on a personal level? How do you work through it? Is it through critical thinking? Is it something else? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, send us a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine, and tweet us at BFM Radio. Be financially minded. BFM eighty nine point nine. It is 6.14 and you're listening to Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod. We're talking today about hate speech and more specifically how you cope with it because the Prime Minister is suggesting that critical thinking needs to be employed, that we shouldn't just kind of take it um, and absorb it. Instead, we should be assessing it more critically, which I think can be a hard ask because it's emotional. It's meant to be emotional by its nature. So 
Do you find hate speech triggering? That's what we're asking you. How do you work through it? That number to call is double seven double three two nine hundred. Send us a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine and tweet us at BFM Radio. Joining us now we have Dr. Ryan Chua, program director at Pusat Komas, a human rights NGO advocating for democracy, equality and justice. He's also an adjunct lecturer of psychology at Monash University. Dr. Ryan, thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you for the invitation. So what did you think about the Prime Minister's suggestion to apply critical thinking to combat hate speech? Do you think that that is a rational approach to deal with such an emotional issue? Um, in my opinion, I think this is a sound suggestion. Um, really, it's, in, it's a, the sense of encouraging people to deconstruct the messages that they hear and to really understand the intentions or goals of the messenger. Uh, but, you know, to when we speak with regards to hate speech, there are so many other factors which actually comes into play. Ryan, is there, can I just ask you to uh, define for us what de- deconstruct the message means? What exactly is required in deconstruction? You already mentioned intentions of the person producing the hate speech. What more? So uh, really, it, it really comes back into what we call as critical thinking skills. And I think when the Prime Minister Anwar Ibrahim mentioned that uh, it's really more in terms of identifying your own personal biases, inferences, or, you know, to a certain extent, conduct some research and to identify things. Uh, and I think that's really where he really met, you know, when it comes to uh, matters pertaining to hate speech, you see. But I think having said that, um, when hate speech comes through in an interpersonal context um, with people that you know or with people who are actually in your life, it can be especially triggering for many of us. Talk to us about how that experience can differ from person to person. All right. So when it comes to interpersonal context, um, what people consider to be bigotry or to be socially acceptable or something to fight against is really based on one's political ideology, their own values and their own beliefs. So to a certain extent, one person can find a message triggering, but another person can agree wholeheartedly with the message and they see nothing wrong with it. So this really comes back into what we call as confirmation bias, uh, where certain messages are more likely to appeal to certain groups of people as it conforms to their pre-existing views and their core values. So um, it becomes a little bit more challenging when, when they fit fine and they believe that their views and their values are threatened. So they are more inclined to defend themselves or to, you know, to defend that view. So again, you know, that, that's where we really have to understand when you know, we speak about hate speech and the interpersonal context, these are so many other factors which actually uh, differs accordingly to people. So we also have to take into consideration that there are some people who do not have a say when they are targeted, for example, like the migrants, the refugees and much more. Really. Ryan, can we just sort of uh, focus still on the interpersonal context? But there are a lot of things that we encounter that some people read, as you said, you know, some people read as racist, some people might not. Say, for instance, a sign that says, you know, I, there's a room for rent, but only X person from a, a, a racial cat- uh, a group is allowed to, to apply. Is that racist? How do you, is, do you find that these things are equally on the spectrum tending towards hate or would you make a distinction of all right so when 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 it comes to hate um definitely there is a call to a certain call action or you know victimizing certain group you know but when it comes to matters pertaining to racism i mean that's a clear preference where you deny someone uh from an equal opportunity 
so when 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 there's when we when we categorize something to be racist, it does not necessarily mean that it it's definitely a hate speech, you know, in in that sense. You know, when hate speech, there's also a lot of mild intentions, malign responses about other groups, you know. But uh, that's where we really need to see uh, the context in terms of where the message is all about, really. And how does this dynamic between the hate speech message and its reception change when it becomes both weaponized in uh, when it becomes weaponized in both a public and political discourse all right so again um this is where we come into the exploitation in hate judgment you know hate messages to a certain extent most likely have an emotional or human interest aspect uh, uh, in it so it would definitely or it would lead to generation of a lot of publicity among the society so when, when it comes to these messages, especially in relation to hate messages, it's designed in a way that it would actually be more sellable and appealable to the people. So, and when it's, you know, when you have different platforms that comes, you know, like for example, the mainstream news, the social media, these emotions are further amplified. And, you know, this, and when we look into the political discourse, it would, it's usually very linked to identity politics where it's both combined in a way that you know you could convince or persuade readers to their own ideologies and that would also lead to the support of their own political parties. So I, I have a study, you know, a psychological study which shows that the more you are exposed to hate comments, then the more inclined, you know, that you are more likely to post a hate comment yourself. So to a certain extent, we can see that you know hate has that capability to influence other people. And that, that's where we really have to be very careful how we navigate the emotional climate. Yeah, especially in the public space. Ryan, could you give us an example of sort of recent um, sort of pu- very public narratives of hate or, or, or uh, versions of it, right? Would could be suspicion, this feeling that somebody else is encroaching or stolen something from you. Uh, these kinds of narratives, where have you seen them in politics recently? Um it's, it, I mean, probably not. Uh, it's quite quite recent. I mean, a year or two. A very good example is in terms of how there is a growing hate against the refugee, the Rohingya community, right? But if you realize when you look through and you trace back into this um these factors, uh, you know, it started all. You no, know, we were actually very receptive of these communities. We are open to them at one stage in two thousand eighteen to two thousand nineteen. But when COVID nineteen takes place. You know, there was a lot of actions in which where, you know, the migrant communities were all sprayed and desensitized, uh, you know, disinfected publicly. There were also statements by the Home Minister at the point of time calling the refugees, especially the Rohingya communities, to not be, you know, uh, to not flaunt the UNHCR cards. And then after that, then he also said, that, you know, look, we have to review all of this again. And then subsequent points, we have the Immigration Department coming out with a specific poster which demeans these groups of people. So that's an example in which where, you know, where we were all quite receptive and open to these groups of people at the beginning, but it has a stable, you know, it has a way in terms of influence people's mindset. From being receptive, we are now quite hostile to these groups of people. And, and, and that's where, you know, this is a great example where we can see that, you know, how hate speech has changed people's perception and their views on the Rohingya community. So the thing is, right, and this is something we spoke about earlier, in Malaysia, a lot of the hate speech does revolve around racial issues, religion, and these are things that can, for many people, be fundamental to their identities. So from a psychological perspective, how does one approach something as complex as that? I, I think you got that really right in terms of uh, race and religion is very, very connected uh, to one's identity. 
And it's really difficult at this point of time because we are all groomed, we are all raised in a point where we understand that race and religion is very in, embedded into one person's self. So um, when people feel that they are threatened, and especially, you know, they will definitely come up to really try to protect them. And that's where we really need to have the desensitization to happen. Because uh, this is not an, a thing that has happened overnight. This is a long uh, process. The systems, to a certain extent, encourages this kind of mentality and understanding. And, and it, it to, an, to, to, an, uh, to an extent, has really created that kind of mindset. And we need to break and deconstruct this kind of thoughts and, uh, and ideas. And that's where, you know, the whole process of deconstructing has to take place. You know, it has to start from young because for, for a certain amount of time, you know, we are really taught, we are really not challenged to think critically in schools to a certain extent. And everything is a lot about memorizing and much more. So, you know, really, we have to start everything from young. And to be able to discern all of this, we need to have these skills honed at that point of time as well. So, you know, it's, it's something really difficult uh, where we are, we are talking about these issues because it's, it's very closely tied to one's identity and, and we really need to deconstruct all of this one by one and then we can really address those issues. So, Ryan, one of the things that I also wanted to touch on is, um, I, this is also a bit of a complicated one, but the truth is that sometimes when people lob hate speech out online or whatever, um, or especially when it's part of a political manoeuvre, it's often part of actually shaping a narrative. It's not supposed to be personal per se. Nobody's actually calling for, um, you know, the expulsion of groups or whatever. It's just a sort of continuation of a political narrative. And even when you recognise that, it can be hard to deal with. So I think my question is, when you feel personally under attack, even though you know it's part of like a larger political thing that doesn't really have anything to do with you, how do you manage that? I think that's that's where, you know, the, the point of critical thinking skills really come into place. Again, uh, when it's something very emotionally charged, uh, for example, you know, when we look at something when we are affected and influenced emotionally, it would sometimes overload your mental capacity in that sense. So we need we also need to think that, you know, let's try to use logic. And, and I think that's where the Prime Minister's response is really being, you know, let's use critical thinking skills. So one of the few things that we could really do when it, when you become or you know when you engage and you look into messages of hate speech, first you have to pause and really have a fact check and try to understand. And we have to also react to it because a lot of times when these messages come out, as you have mentioned, it becomes a narrative. There's a lack of uh, response to all of this. And this is where it becomes worse because we are quiet, we are silent about this. It means that we are in agreement to all of that. And that's where we as individuals have to speak up against it and say, look, that, that point that you're saying, it's not right. That point that you're saying, it's going to be maligned to other people. So again, we really need to come out to show solidarity and support to other groups of people. And we have too many silent people out there. You know, you know we disagree with a lot of points, but because maybe we are too nice, you know, we don't want to offend the other, and then we just remain silent. And that's where the narrative got change you know that, that, that these are some of the things that we really have to 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 speak out against and that's what we are facing today because there's a lack of people saying something a lack of people supporting the other initiatives and points to counter those narrative and it just allows the whole narrative to loom and that's where the problem is you know really 
Now, I want to talk about social media, but I, I guess it's, it'd be true to say that hate speech predates social media. I mean, the Rwandan genocide, you know, implicated radio, I think, in a, in a, in a big way. So, but on social media, because so many of us get source uh, of hate and, and anger on social media, what practical advice do you have for people uh, with regard to social media? All right. So, for example, certain social media um, um, platforms, like, for example, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, they have a report mechanism. So if you see such things like this, you can always report. And of course, you need to substantiate it. You know, that, um, that's what we really need to do. In fact, uh, TikTok has this um, response, you know, when, they, when you identify someone spewing hate speech, you know, you can actually send a report and they will take down those videos. So social media also has a role to help us moderate those contents. And, and I think certain social media platforms today have this governing body, which actually oversees all of this. But again, it's human beings, right? You know, and these issues, sometimes it, it, you, it's not that it's, you know, we, we can use the AI to identify, you know, they can identify key points, but really, you know, when you see something like this in social media, you can always uh, first report this, um, these comments and report these messages. And of course, challenge them as well, you know, I have one of one, one of my friends who was also saying that, you know, one of the things is that, you know, there's always silent, you know, when you see a lot of messages which are hateful and much more, we just decide to just remain quiet. We don't want to counter and comment, question them. What is the basis of all this? We, we don't do all that, but we have a role because if we really want to counter hate speech, then we have to actually take those preemptive moves. Yes, it may be difficult and a lot of us are fearful because when I'm fearful to come out and to speak out against all of this, because we are worried of the repercussions and that's where these narratives are amplified and it becomes stronger. And that's how, you know, hate continue to manifest itself. Ryan, thank you so much for speaking with us today. That was Dr. Ryan Chua, Programs Director at Pusat Komas, a human rights NGO advocating for democracy, equality and justice. He's also an adjunct lecturer of psychology at Monash University. And together we've been talking about how to cope with hate speech, um, because the Prime Minister is suggesting that one primary way to do it is to apply critical thinking, not to just take it, essentially. Uh, we're asking you... I mean, I think it's a few things, right? Like, have you noticed an uptick in hate speech? Do you find hate speech difficult to deal with, triggering? How do you work through it? Let us know. That number to call is double seven double three two nine hundred. Send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. Be free-minded. BFM 89.9. It is just about 6.38 and you're listening to Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod and today we are talking about how to cope with hate speech. This is because the Prime Minister is uh, has advised university students not to just kind of absorb whatever hateful comments are directed at them, particularly from politicians, but instead to apply critical thinking. And so we are asking you, Essentially, do you find hate speech triggering, difficult to deal with? Uh, how do you work through it? Where does critical thinking come in? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, send a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine, and tweet us at BFM Radio. We do have a caller on the line with us now. We've got Victor. Victor, good evening. What are your thoughts? Good evening, Lin and Charlotte. Uh, actually, I would like to tell this uh, to advise our Saudara PM that critical thinking is not like pipe water where you can turn on and off. 
because uh, when you need it, it might not be there. Our this education system does not cultivate uh, critical thinking. So uh, we instill belief rather than the will to find out. So when we need it, it might not be there. Can I ask you about the timeline you think it will require for us to change? So say that the current government is determined to add critical thinking into the education system, right? Is this, are we talking about an electoral cycle, a generation, two generations? What, in your estimation, will be necessary to elevate a significant amount of the population to achieve the kind of ends that uh, the Prime Minister hopes to achieve? I think it takes a whole generation. You start from small. I mean, this is like a generation end game, another version of it. So we have to start from, <laughs> don't know, from where uh, education starts. And uh, bearing in mind, bearing in mind, this uh, human nature actually uh, uh, is more prone to hatred than uh, friendliness. Uh, so say Bertrand Russell, why is it that propaganda to stir up hatred is more successful than uh, to stir up this uh, friendly feeling? Because human nature is prone to hatred. But so very, very quickly, generation, it take a generation. Yeah, just very quick question. One more for you. Uh, do you think families are as responsible as schools for the the creation of mindsets that are racially inclined, or you know, which have hate impulses? Or we playing it all, or blame it all on the schools? But well, what about families? Yeah, family actually is more important. Uh, is as important, if not more so. But uh, I think. Sorry to say, uh, we are talking about agnostic, isn't it? <laughs> I'm an agnostic. I'm not a believer. So I believe religion could be the problem, even though I know I'm going to offend a lot of people. Victor, thank you for calling and for sharing. Um, you know, I think that I was thinking about the, the family thing, not so much the religion thing. Thank you, though, Sharat, for getting us there. Um, I, I was thinking more about the issue of family and how that relates to what we're talking about today. Because I want to be clear, we're not talking about bias or racism alone because you can be a god-awful racist and not tell anyone about it you know there is a possibility that you could be that person keep it um, to yourself exactly what we're talking about today though is the inclination to externalize right you don't just hate you feel the need to tell everybody you hate them and so um I think that this question of family is interesting because then we're talking not just about, you know, biases or whatever that could be inherited, that could be not inherited, but that could be taught um, and all those things. We are also talking about how one is brought up and whether that inclines them towards these sorts of shows of, of hatred because that's its own thing and that's separate. Yeah, but I, you know, the thing about Anwar here, the two messages, right? One is about how you receive hate messages, maybe coming from the political sphere. He did also talk about judging others. And he says judging others from a place of hate, all right? And he, he kind of advised against it. I think that the story of the family, right, and the reproduction of some of these uh, 
hate narratives actually come deep in, uh, and maybe very subtly in families. And that's why they're so deeply embedded. So you think of colorism in families. You think of how you, you think about your neighbor in terms of what they eat and the smells they might have. I mean, all these are very subtle, often very coded uh, racial um, attitudes that, in fact, help you be more receptive to hate messages. Mm. Yeah, um, I agree with that. Although then I think I would return to my point about being receptive to hate messages and then taking that next step of broadcasting hate messages. Because that's we're talking about both elements today, right? The inclination, how you receive it, how you process it, that's the central thing. Uh, the other thing is how what drives the broadcasting of it, because that's the other element here that's problematic. Um, we also have a voice note that came in. This is from Saiful Ikram. Sometimes we are forgetting that we are in the same species, Homo sapiens. We are one species that living on this earth. And the difference between us, maybe 0.001% in terms of our DNA. We cannot choose uh, who we are as a Chinese, Malay, Indian, Caucasian. We are born to it. This is part of God's gift. The problem with this, some people are using this kind of hate speech or racism or this divide based on the old rules of politics, divide and conquer. By dividing the society, they manage to conquer it. And that's what they do. And for me, we, the adult, are the one the main culprit because we are teaching others, our children, how to create or how to be hate to other races or other different differences in us. God made us with a lot of variety, a lot of faces, a lot of belief to make this world beautiful. We can see in the playground, the children, they can play together regardless who is their friend. In fact, they can play together even they do not understand each other. We, the adult, are the one who've been dividing. Saiful, thank you for that. Um, you know, I think that this chimes in quite neatly with what we've been talking about in terms of family and where some of these A beliefs, B behaviours actually come from. Yeah, Saiful, I absolutely agree with you. But for me, it's, you know, what you suggest is a kind of moral... Um, perspective, right? It's a moral narrative uh, which sees us together. But if you if we go back in history and we kind of look at the, the emergence of the species and tribalism is so much part of it, there are people who say, well, we're not anchored to that past. I, mean, I think the past weighs on us, but the question is how do we imagine ourselves differently? And in, in the Malaysian context, uh, especially when some of these categories, I mean, you yourself, Saiful, will know that, you know, what is a Malay is a, is a very, um, it's not a natural category. Not even Indians, because it's, we're only Indians as an ethnic category in Malaysia. It's not true of India. India Indians is just a citizenship status, right? There's no sense of that being a, a hard natural category. But we in Malaysia talk about it in, in those ways. And maybe that's where we need the education can start breaking down those categories already. So... We also have um, people talking about the suggestion of critical thinking specifically, right? So Daniel says, for me, critical thinking is always the best way to manage it. Having a good understanding and good evaluation or judgment towards a particular message will help one to manage emotions. It's similar to when you read a book. It has to be perceived and judged in a critical manner rather than blindly and literally accepting the message. But the challenge is, how critical are we? I always believe that reading or, or listening and thinking are two different things and both are required. 
Yeah, I agree again, Daniel, with, you know, your suggestion. And I think, you know, like we think of filmmakers in Malaysia, uh, you know, if you think of the film uh, Sepet, it, it had characters in it that were hateful. But they, Yasmin Ahmad tries to trace that to a personal feeling of inadequacy, of lack in that character, right? And, and so sometimes we forget that there's all these other dynamics going on, these deep, deep hurts, because it is pleasurable to hate. And I think... I'm not saying that it, I'm not advocating it. I'm just saying that we don't recognize that some people find it pleasure, pleasurable or in fact reaffirming to their own identity to hate others. Then we miss out on a kind of necessary step to address. Well, I would, uh, I agree up to a point. There are elements of this that I disagree with. And I think that um, that comes down to the fact that we're not talking about emotions, are we? We're still talking about critical thinking as if it stands alone from a person, as if it's something that you can access as and when you need it. When we all know, and I'm sure have all been in circumstances where even if you thought of yourself as the most logical person in a moment of um, emotional extremes, you don't have that. It's not available to you in that time. And, you know, I, I could go on, I could say fight or flight, I, I could cite all these things, but I think most of us are familiar with that feeling of being under siege or feeling like, wait, what? What? You know, and, Outrage, right? And Absolutely. therefore not being able to access the thing that I agree with you, Daniel, is a good method of coping with it. My question, I think, is, okay, we want people to apply critical thinking. That's good advice. How do we get people to work through the emotional part enough to put down the phone <laughs> and, and, you know, think before you actually send back a, well, well I hate you too? Yeah, and so this is the thing that schools don't do, right? I think at least when I was in school, right, the development of your EQ, your ability to manage your emotions and manage your impulses in a in a world where commerce is trying to trigger you into buying things, right? I mean, everybody's trying to trigger you because they recognize that we're these chemical and creatures that, you know, where dopamine hits are the, the thing to get us going or to buy something, whatever. So I, I think that, um, when we don't deal with our emotions specifically. So, yeah, a class that deconstructs, desensitizes, all that is good. But we need a, we need a class or time in school uh, which allows kids to work through the emotional side of these things that we don't feel... Um, you know, a buzz from hating others. Because you know, people do. People mm. feel a buzz from hating. It's so nice to find somebody who's below you in the pecking order so you can dump on them. And that is something well, that is a kind of the psychological, uh, you know, tick. Well, to dump on them, but then also to join others in dumping on them. It's a group thing as well. It's, you know, so this is very funny, right? When we think, when the feeling we get when we attack a racist is in fact, in some ways, a bit of the mob mentality kind of added to that mix, right? Because then we say, oh yeah, the, all these people on Twitter also hating this person and telling them they're stupid and whatnot, right? So, so we need to check ourselves and that's not as easy as it sounds. So we're talking today about hate speech um, and asking you, how do you cope with it, basically? Uh, the Prime Minister is suggesting that critical thinking is a crucial component here in just not blindly taking it on and going ahead with it. But we're asking you, how do you work through hate speech? Um, how do you think we can address this thing? That number to call is double seven double three two nine hundred. You can send us a voice note or WhatsApp 18 and tweet us at BFM Radio. 
Being first matters. BFM 89.9. It's 6.52 and this is Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod. We're talking today about hate speech because as is typical, um, whenever there is some sort of political thingy on the horizon, uh, as I'm calling the the state elections, you see an uptick in it. Uh, The Prime Minister has responded to this uh, at a student programme at UKM. He said that university students shouldn't just absorb whatever hateful comments politicians feed them. Instead, they should apply critical thinking. That can be a way to, to mediate it a little bit. But And we're agreeing with that, but also saying maybe it's not enough. So we're asking you, how do you cope with hate speech? That number to call is double seven double three two nine hundred. Send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. So let's see. Um, We have Michael actually giving quite a practical solution. Michael says... I quit all social media, Facebook mainly. I never really did use Twitter, or Instagram, TikTok, whatever. Now I say my piece on BFM's talk back. Maybe a little LinkedIn, but I'm happy to say not being on social media means that I do avoid a lot of hate speech. Like it or not, regardless of mental fortitude after reading and understanding something, it's hard to not process it, whether logically or emotionally. Michael, I mean, you you are a very brave soul. Um, I wish I could. Um, perhaps I, I say to myself as a journalist, I can't do it. I can't leave social media. I, I need to be in touch with the pulse of the country, even if it's racing and slightly, um, you know, um, feral. The the question really is, uh, what do we want? What do we want to do with this broadcasting element? Because as an individual, you can pull yourself out. Broadcasting continues. Facebook, all these sites allow everybody to be a broadcaster today. And you can get a huge following without the kind of institutional uh, setup that it was once necessary in order to become a major influencer. And so this is the extraordinary thing about the con- the contemporary world. Hate can be spread on so many different platforms. And some often it's hidden from mainstream views. It could be a little small group kind of like stewing away in their hate for X, Y, and Z, right? So what do we do? Can we shut everything down? I don't think so, right? So that's why I think critical thinking or an investment in our EQ with our young people is in fact the only bulwark against the tide of hate that seems to be coming through our social media platforms. So actually that's something I want to pick up on a little bit. Um, let, let's let's adjust the premise a bit, right? Because we're talking about hate speech. We are acknowledging that critical thinking is needed in order to work through it. But we're trying to get at the emotional stuff and we haven't gotten there yet. And so I'd like to kind of say, since looking at the messages, listening to the calls, children are a big part of this where we're in agreement that it has to start young. I think my question is, what role do you think schools and families play in teaching children how to handle conflict in such a way that you don't grow up receptive to messages of hatred. Because, of course, if it starts young, if you have um, either a deeply aggressive reaction to to conflict or to disliking somebody else, then one could see a pretty logical follow-through to how you conduct yourself online in your 30s. It's true, right? So the difficulty is not everything begins as hate. It might actually begin with something simple and we might think is natural, socially natural, which is something like difference. The difference between you and me, me, you and the neighbor, right? And it might be survival. I mean, it just is that we need to make these distinctions Mm. in order to negotiate the real world. But 
one, one, when does difference hardened into something like um, hate, right? Where you, not only is the person different, they're so different, so other, which is the uh, technical term for it, othering, that in fact they, they cease to be equal as human beings. And then they are open to abuse, uh, to vilification for projecting all your worst fears on them, right? And this is what we see. But it's a kind of gradual step-by-step -step thing that begins. And that's why I think sometimes families and what they say to each other can be quite insidious because it doesn't sound that racist or hateful in the family context, but it could grow in to something when it sort of coheres with some other agenda. So, um, let us know what you think. We are asking you about how you cope with hate speech. Um, how is it? How do you work through it? And whether you think that there is room for schools and families to create space for people to learn to live with conflict um, rather than it exploding into hate. You can call 7733-2900, send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. Benchmark for Managers, BFM 89.9. It is 7.06 and you're listening to Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod and we're continuing a discussion really about hate speech in which we are trying to tackle it from a number of different ways because the Prime Minister has suggested that one way of coping with hate speech is that people should employ critical thinking. This at least was something he said to university students recently and we are talking about that, firstly how effective that can be but we're also trying to extend it beyond and look at the fact that most people would agree critical thinking is the way to go, but how do you work through the emotional stuff that comes up with it? Because it's very triggering. So if you'd like to weigh in, that number to call is double seven double three two nine hundred. Send a voice note to zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Uh, we do have on the side of things a message from Naga, who firstly is saying that uh, maybe we should be speaking less. So fair enough, Naga. Thank you for that. Um, but they also go on to say hate speech is unwarranted and hurtful. Critical thinking, as suggested by the PM as a way to overcome it. The initial response is to strike back, but restraint is necessary to rationalise the message, to understand its origins and background, so you can decide to respond or not to. Most hate speech is made by emotional people meant to hurt. We should deny them the means to do it. Yeah, so Naga, I think you're absolutely right in the sense that, um, you know, the idea of not encouraging the haters, not not feeding the hate by responding to it, I think that's almost become like common wisdom uh, for social media, uh, you know, uh, or people on social media. But Lynn said something during the break that I thought was quite interesting, which addresses your question of the who is creating the hate speech. Yes, it might be people who are emotional or hurt before. I mean, I think, you know, going back to Yasmin Ahmad's film, but there's also what I think, Lynn, you're absolutely right. Today, you know, much of hate is manufactured in mills, political mills with particular things. So when, and this comes back to the Anwar question of, you know, fighting arguments with arguments, is that these people have a deep sense of the psychology of the target audience they have. So I think, uh, Naga, to your point, when you say most hate speech is made by emotional people meant to hurt, I think I see what you mean if you're talking about it on a personal level. So if it's like, you know, on a personal basis, if it's like groups marching or, or whatever, I, I, I agree. Um, I think, though, the problem is very often these days online, at least, it's really hard to track back 
who said the thing initially? And when you do, you often find that it did come from a mill somewhere. The question then becomes, why did it spread so far? And the spread is where your hurt people come in. Because there are hurt people who see something like this and go, well, that resonates with me, and then they spread it. But the creation of it, I think, is a very cynical and paid-for thing. Yeah, uh, yeah, paid-for, and sometimes by political parties that clearly have, like, who work this out, right? So they have a social media agenda, and they see what narratives will take them and their supporters further, or, or the fence-sitters further in uh, achieving the ends. But um, so how do we, how do we break that uh, impulse to respond? How do we get the restraint that you talk about, Naga? That is the EQ part of the story, right? How do we teach young people, um, you know, if, if the old dogs uh, can't learn new tricks, but at least the young people can, how do we teach that? Well, some people don't want to do that or don't necessarily see that as the main solution. Instead, they think legislation is the way. Andrew, Arvin and Mario are all in that vein. Uh, Andrew says, you can talk until the cows come home. It's not going to make a difference with critical thinking. Make it a law that ministers, politicians in parliament and so on cannot have hate speech on gender, race and beliefs. A law to make everyone equal. This can then transcend down to the general public. Uh, commoners are always taking cue, the cue from leaders. Arvin says, I don't think everyone can apply critical thinking at the right time and in the correct situation. It's timely for a hate speech law. Mario says, ban hate speech by politicians, penalise them with public apologies. Um, make a new law. Uh, trying to resolve this will take at least three generations or a hundred years or more. Yeah, so laws are very interesting because we do have hate uh, hate speech laws in many countries, and I think the UN uh, level global discussions about it. I think the Johannesburg, uh, Johannesburg principles are often applied in discussions of uh, hate, but hate. We think it's a very simple matter. It isn't, especially if you also want to balance that with free speech, right? So, how is criticism uh, different from hate? So on and so forth. Does hate have to be, I think with the Johannesburg principles, I think it has to be, uh, included in it has to be a call of act to action to do something against a group. So it cannot simply just say, you, know, you say you hate somebody, but that's not hate speech. It's only hate speech when you say, well, now we go and burn their houses down. So... I am interested in this because I I think that there's room for legislation. Certainly, having a clear definition of what hate speech is and what the where the lines are legally is helpful. Um, it does have to come alongside all the other stuff we've been talking about, right? Education, um, a look at what how people are speaking online. Um, I also think, crucially, that it can't just be for politicians. So, um, so far, a lot of the messages have focused on politicians making it a law that they can't conduct hate speech. But that's not really the bulk of where it comes in, actually. You know, it's it's all over the place. They just have the biggest pulpit. So that's one thing. The other thing is, and I don't mean to complicate it, but we have seen politicians um, or people in power who get curtailed by laws around things like hate speech, then taking it to online spaces and playing the victim and firing people up even more under the guise of freedom of speech. Yeah, it is get it does get complicated and I think each case of hate needs to be addressed on its own terms. Uh you know, in, in BFM we had that case of viral CL. Uh remember it was it was a documentary made on an episode in which BFM was caught up in 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 hate speech with with 
threats of violence uh, against uh, our announcers and, and the station itself. I mean, all these instances, right? I, I mean, uh, Lynn, philosophically, I'm against banning things. I doubt bans are... Uh, absolute capture all the instances of, of the things that we want to uh, regulate. But I think in a culture where freedom of expression is still attenuated, uh, a ban is probably not the way to go. Keep those thoughts coming. How do you cope with hate speech? Uh, that number to call is double seven double three two nine hundred. Send us a voice note at 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. Big Front Man, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9 at 7.20. You're listening to Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod. And today we're talking about hate speech, sadly, um, and asking you how to combat that because the Prime Minister is suggesting that critical thinking is a crucial component here. We agree. We also think that there needs to be more to it. So we're asking you for those ideas, suggestions, thoughts. You can call double seven double three two nine hundred. Send us a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine and tweet us at BFM Radio. So okay, we've got a couple of voice notes. Let's start with um, this one. Uh, they introduce themselves. Hi BFM. I'm Richard here. Critical thinking doesn't work. If you have good critical thinking, you won't be a racist. People like this don't have critical thinking. They are very shadow-minded. Uh, that's why they're called racist. Uh, go for legislation. Find them, jail them. Simple as that. Thank you. Richard, I, I, w- I wish, I so wish I could agree with you fully in the sense of um, peop- if they had critical thinking, they wouldn't be racist. I wish the world worked like that. Um, I, I think that that's an interesting perspective. Except when you take the point that racism might be deployed or hate might be deployed strategically to manipulate, right? Then, in fact, very smart people might be making or producing hate speech. Yeah. So, okay, then if we go to Richard's suggestion to find them or jail them, that's a, that's the, we're going back to legislation and being more punitive. Uh, we do have a reaction to that. From Zach, who says, I don't like hate speech. I don't know how to handle it. But creating laws or banning hate speech is not the solution. Freedom of expression is the mother of all freedoms. Creating a law to regulate it will only empower the government to interpret and use it against anyone in opposition. That may be true, Zach. I I guess I'm philosophically and ideologically on your side on this. But the problem also will be that when hate speech gets very intense, Mm. the pressure from just ordinary reasonable people... To, to use banning and to use the law amounts. And popular governments or democratic governments find it, I think, very difficult uh, to resist something like a simple solution, even if it do- doesn't pr- provide a complete uh, response. It's still good. Actually, maybe we should just be clear about this. You are not necessarily in favour of a punitive act. Uh, no. So I'm not in favour of a ban without commensurate um, protections for freedom of expression. Right. OK. So in other words, we could have an act, but we need to ensure that certain freedoms of expression um, are protected. Yeah. And that the definition of hate has to be very specific and not vague. 
Okay. Yeah, uh, if that's the case, I agree with you. I think, however, I would also like to see programs um, to manage the number of things that we're talking about today, the EQ, the critical thinking, all that good stuff. I, I think that needs to be hand in hand. I'm really not a fan of us legislating problems because I don't think that always comes with the necessary awareness alongside it. Uh, we also have, well, the return of uh, Saiful Ikram making another point. In my humble opinion, uh, maybe human, we need a common enemy. For example, we have last time, last two years, we have COVID-19. So everybody are working together, regardless you are Malay, Chinese or Indian. There's no hateful, no anything about that. And then we are working together, rakyat untuk rakyat, rakyat bantu rakyat and all those kind of things. If you see in a movie like Independence Day, we can see a common enemy, alien, invade, try to invade, uh, invade uh, the world. Then everybody come together, regardless of Israel, Palestine, or Jews, or Lebanon, everything, and American or Chinese, we are coming together to fight off an invasion. Hateful speech is just a matter of controlling power, a propaganda, that kind of other people. Once you understand the origin, of the hateful speech, you will understand that it is nothing just a speech. And for me, the way I do it in my social media is very simple. When I see a lot of people are doing hateful speech, everything I just delete them, delete them from their friendship, uh, from as for my friend or in either in Twitter or anything, just delete them. Because at the end of the day, I will have a peaceful social media. Saiful, thank you. And thank you so much for bringing up Independence Day and uh, the great speeches contained within. So I, I want to pick up on your point about social media because this, Sharad earlier said um, that this is a struggle you have, Sharad, because of um, journalism being, you know, wanting to know things. Unplugging yourself. Yes, from social media. My problem with deleting people that I disagree with is that I sometimes worry that I'm creating a bubble for myself and then I question that a lot. So this is my personal thing where every time I hover over an unfollow or a block, I think, "Mm, is this me being close-minded or is this me, you know, doing what Saiful is suggesting? I can't find the line. I, I haven't found it yet. Yeah, it's very difficult. You know, I struggle. I want to learn about the Middle East. But, you know, when I read about settler violence in Israel or I read about, I mean, the oppression of minorities in any way in the world, really, it, it really does upset me. So there's not so much hate, but it's that, right? But then where do you go? If you, do you want to be like on Xanax all day and be numb to the world? Who knows? Um, we do have a suggestion, though, that's coming in from uh, Ching. Mindfulness, love and compassion. That is the way to counter hate and uh, to really understand our fellow human beings and to understand uh, the whole concept of forgive them for they do not know. Because hate comes from a certain level of uh, ignorance. And, you know, when we we understand that uh, we are all imperfect human beings and we all have um, our own ignorance and blind spots, we can be more understanding more compassionate to to another and at the end of the day not uh, get triggered and I truly believe that um, if we set the example of responding uh, to hate with love and kindness with uh, compassion um, that is the shift that uh, we need to shift towards a better and more peaceful world rather than countering with uh, more hate and anger. 
Ching, thank you for that. Uh, we've also got another voice note that just came in from TIDJ. So I just tuned in and I didn't catch the whole conversation, so it might be out of context, but there is a distinction between critic, sorry, between racism and between hate speeches. So, like based on some of your comments, I would like to put my two cents in, which is racism is innate in us. It is a spectrum. Some people are mildly racist. Some people are extremely racist. Everyone is racist. Period. Like uh, there are, what was it called? neuroanthropological studies and racism is something that has existed in us as a species forever. As for hate speech, I think, yes, there should be some form of punitive punishment, but it needs to clearly be defined what is hate speech. Like, um, it can be abuse if, if the definition is very vague. TIDJ, thanks for that. Um, and we agree. I think that that's something we were talking about earlier in terms of if we were to legislate, what should that look like? Ching, um, your point earlier that you made about responding with love and compassion is an interesting one. I think sometimes in our increasingly individualistic society with the co-opting of therapy speak and self-care and all of that, sometimes it can be hard because people think about it in terms of boundaries, which is fair, um, but then that can go too far and then we respond to nobody with compassion in the name of self-protection. I think Ching, like Saiful before, you know, you're, you're kind of talking about a, a moral perspective on the world, on, on the species, right? And, and that is already means that the person is buying into something. So how do you get people to buy mm. into these moral frameworks that create or dampen hate? I don't necessarily agree with TIDJ about uh, this being hardwired, not racism at least, maybe tribalism, I would say. I would say but, a noticing of difference. Yeah, yeah a noticing mm -hmm. and making that difference the basis for organizing society or uh, acting in the world, right? So uh, that's it from us. We've been talking about hate speech and how to cope with it. Uh, lots of messages coming in at the end. We read them all even if we don't read them on air. Thank you so much for weighing in. You've been listening to Inside Story, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.